welcome to the History of Islam podcast, episode 8, the first few chapters. Assalamu alaikum, hello and welcome to another installment of the History of Islam podcast. Last episode, we reached the birth of an orphan boy in Mecca. And with that, we took a, a look at what the rest of the world was up to and the developments away from Mecca, specifically in the north and the imperial powers that surrounded Arabia at the time. This episode, we're making a return back to Arabia and back to Mecca to look at the first few chapters of Muhammad's life. One of the customs of the settled Arabs, particularly the nobles in places like Mecca and Ta'if, for example, was to send off the newborn babies to the desert to live a Bedouin lifestyle. And there were several reasons for this practice, which mostly fall under the umbrella of a Bedouin lifestyle being considered simply better. So I'm going to go over a few reasons why this was the case. The first is that it was considered healthier. Bedouin lifestyle was considered healthier as the desert air was considered fresher and cleaner than that of a city. So the baby was more likely to survive. Infant mortality was a much bigger problem in antiquity than it is today. And we can assume that one of the reasons this was is because of the diseases and epidemics that are more likely to rise up when people are living more densely situated. They live in together in higher concentrations, which is the case in cities. With a nomadic lifestyle, this becomes less of a problem. And a nomadic lifestyle in comparison with a settled life has a much lower population density. The second reason is that a Bedouin lifestyle was a better upbringing for the child, character-wise. It would result in a better person, a better adult. And this was because a Bedouin lifestyle was again considered very noble by the Arabs. One reason for this was that the independence aspect that we talked about a few episodes ago, um, as a proud people, the Arabs tended to value independence quite highly, and the Bedouins as nomads were the peak of independence, roaming about in total freedom, drifting with the desert sands. Um, another reason is that, as Martin Lings said, nobility and freedom were inseparable for the Arabs. For you to be considered noble and uh, to carry the prestige that a noble noble Arab would have, you have to be free. And the nomad was as free as he can be. Um, the place that he pegged his tent um, yesterday was different to the place that he was eating his lunch the next day. But the townsman, on the other hand, was a virtual prisoner, bound to one place yesterday, today and tomorrow. The nomad, due to his lifestyle, is always alert, always ready and prepared for whatever. Whereas the townsman allows the comforts of the town to lull him to sleep and complacency, where he loses his edge, he loses his alertness and his vigilance. The town ended up being seen as a place that was essentially corrupted or at least allowed manly and noble characteristics to decay. Even things like language, which was highly prized by the Arabs, uh, poetry was pretty much the only method of cultural output that the, uh, the Arabs practiced. But we'll come back to that in a second. The three distinct elements that formed the person in this society and the elements that he was assessed by are strength, intelligence, and your character or the nobility of your character. And all of these were assessed under two categories. Uh, you personally 
were assessed as an individual, so your personal ability and your personal reputation. And the second category is your tribe and your, your tribe's reputation. So if we look at the first of those three elements, strength, strength was measured and assessed by the power of the tribe that you were from and the, the numbers of people who would go up in arms to protect you. And the second segment of this is your, your, pers- your personal martial abilities. So when looking at specifically personal strength and personal abilities, the two things that were highly and most, most valued were horsemanship and marksmanship which were both greatly featured and emphasized in a nomadic lifestyle. Someone who is a nomad is more likely to be a better horseman and a better archer than someone who engaged in a settled lifestyle. This is because a nomad is riding around everywhere, they're using their bow to, 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 to hunt the animals that they ate, whereas a person that is settled doesn't do that much uh, of those activities. You know, they rely on uh, the herds that they slaughtered rather than hunting uh, you don't move around as much if you're settled. So that was why a nomad is more likely to have those skills more deeply embedded in their persona and more more honed and refined. Uh, the second element was intelligence. And intelligence was measured by eloquence and oratorical skill. Philip K. Heaty in his book The History of the Arabs says that no people in the entire world manifest such enthusiastic admira- uh, admiration sorry, for literary expression. Just to emphasize this further, there is actually an Arab proverb that declares that the beauty of a man lies in the eloquence of his tongue. The most dominant form of literary expression was poetry, without a doubt. The crown of eloquence for the Arabs was poetry. This is because an Arab poet was not just someone who was a good speaker. No, the poet had much more functionality than just that. The Arabian poet for his tribe was a historian. He had to be well versed in the genealogy of his tribe, its roots and the folklore of his people, so that he can sing praises and compose poems that will praise his tribe and all that they had attained in the past and their achievements and their accolades over the years. He also had to be aware of the past of rival tribes so that he could expose their shortcomings and their failures, bringing them to light and mocking them. In this field, he ended up becoming a journalist also a moulder of public opinion, the media of that day. The poems that he composed were committed to memory by the people who listened to them and they would end up spreading from tongue to tongue, one person to another, quite rapidly. These poets would basically have the opportunity to become the celebrities of their day. To have a great and well-known poet in your family or your tribe even was something to be definitely extremely proud of. Due to the poet's role as a media agent and uh, a moulder of public opinion, some leaders or, or even rich and wealthy men would sponsor and pay these poets to compose poems that would include high words of praise, exalting them, or words of scorn and ridicule aimed at their enemies, disparaging them. The words of a poet were so effective that they were enough to incite masses of people to battle and to war, an example of this in action is uh, Harb al-Basus, the Basus War. What was the Basus War? Well, it was a war literally over a single camel that raged on for about 40 years, generations of people fighting. The flames of war were kept alight, burning brightly by the words of poets on both sides. 
urging and inciting their compatriots to avenge the deaths of their kinsmen and hurling insults and barbs at their enemies. Going back to the initial point of sending babies off to be raised up by Bedouins in the desert, the desert was considered a better, nobler and purer case, even with language, because in a city or a town, language is more susceptible to corruption, and as a result of its corrupted state, it can decay. This is because in a city, you are less isolated, so you come into contact with other languages, which then influence your language and reduce its purity. A trading city like Mecca was more vulnerable to this. As we mentioned earlier, in Arab society, a man's intelligence was largely assessed by his eloquence, and so eloquence and beauty of speech were virtues which all Arab parents desired for their children. Due to the nature of Bedouin lifestyle and the isolating factor of desert life, the Arabic language was considered purest in the desert, as that is where it was exposed to less external factors such as foreign languages that could taint it. And this is further evidenced by the fact that the best poets seem to nearly always be from a Bedouin desert tribe. The third of the three elements that we mentioned earlier is character, or nobility of character. And this was assessed in branches in a similar way to strength. Number one, your personal character and your personal reputation. And number two, the reputation of your tribe, the people that you were from. The ideal of Arab virtue was expressed in terms of something called muru'a. Muru'a is a word that really doesn't really have a direct translation to English. And this is because its meaning in English is actually a concoction of many words. Muru'a is the virtues of the perfect ideal Arab man. The component elements of it were things like courage, bravery, discipline, stoicism, honour, loyalty, generosity, manliness, your worthiness and quality in general as a man. Courage and bravery were assessed by your martial ability, for example your skill with a bow or your skill as a horseman. Your courage and bravery was also measured by the number of battles and raids that you have participated in and the way you behaved in those military confrontations. Your discipline, stoicism, also bravery and courage to an extent was assessed by the way you overcame hardship, how you dealt with difficult circumstances. And this is easily instilled in a man who lives a desert nomadic Bedouin lifestyle where it is absolutely normal to go days on end sustaining yourself only on camel's milk and some dates. Your loyalty was assessed by how you behaved with your kinsmen, your level of preparedness to support and aid them in times of need, which was very important in a society where an individual's security was reliant on quid pro quo policies. You know, don't mess with me, because if you do, I've got all these people that will back me up or avenge me tenfold. Your generosity, honour and overall nobility of character were assessed by things like your hospitality, which was a major aspect of Bedouin culture. It's your your readiness to sacrifice animals and bring out the best you have with no reservation for your guests and your friends. Your honour was assessed by other ways you behaved. For example, always upholding a deal, never cheating anyone you dealt with. 
prestige is culminated through this kind of behavior. And what is prestige? Prestige is just respect. And the Bedouin code basically dictated that the ideal man should always be respected and behave in a way that led people to respect him. And this is why uh, slights were never taken lightly, as it would reduce the amount of respect that other people had for you. And on top of this, in a ruthless society, letting anything go inadvertently encourages others to behave towards you in the same way, which could be detrimental in a land like Arabia, where you can simply never allow yourself to appear weak, because all it will do is encourage people to attack you or harm you one way or another. This is why pride is such a huge factor factor, sorry, in the character of the Arab. This kind of attitude had its positives and negatives. It created a very hardy, very tough people who had a great potential if someone could unite them and harness them effectively and efficiently towards one goal, which is what Muhammad and the Banner of Islam managed to accomplish. But it also had many negatives. Uh, one of these is that not only is uniting people like this extremely difficult, the egos that will be butting heads will be hard to manage and to caress, but it would also lead to a lot of pointless bloodshed as we have seen already where people would spend themselves for very little if i go back to the example of the besus war that i mentioned earlier we see a very clear example of the downsides of the attitudes prevalent in the character of the arabs long story short the besus war was basically uh, ignited after a camel belonging to one tribe was killed by another tribe the tribe owning the camel had to react. They couldn't just let it go because it will lead people to think that they could kill their camels, they can take their camels no matter what. So they have to react um, in order to maintain the level of prestige and respect that they had and in order to remain feeling uh, honourable. On the other hand, the tribe that had actually killed the camel refused to concede because not only is there a risk that they may appear weak and vulnerable to the people around them, which would encourage attacks and raids, the camel had actually strayed onto their territory. And for them, nobody could tell them what they could and what they could not do uh, on their territory. In fact, as far as they were concerned, anything that was on their territory was rightfully theirs. This, essentially the death of one she-camel, resulted in about 40 years of bloodshed. And obviously, this is quite quite a big downside to to having those kind of characteristics and those kinds of personality traits prevalent in a society. Going back on track, the nobles of Quraysh would send their babies off to the desert and to pure Bedouin nomadic tribes so that their children would have the qualities that we have just spoken about and so that they would grow up refined, uncorrupted, and most importantly, untainted by city life. The bond with the desert was renewed practically every generation. And I personally think that this was a pretty good policy. And I wonder why it it sort of petered out and it, it wasn't continued on a wide scale after the early Islamic conquests uh, that established the Arabs in uh, Mesopotamia, the Levant, uh, the wider Middle East, basically. And I also wonder what the impact on the world would have been if other nomadic other nomadic groups around the world 
had uh, had had this kind of policy. For example, the Mongols in particular. The Mongols in China had had a uh, a very hard time keeping their in uh, their 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 culture alive and keeping their identity alive. It simply leads you to wonder what what could have been if the Mongols had had a similar kind of policy where they would maintain and renew with every generation a bond with the steppe where they had come from in a similar manner to the way I'm describing that the Bedouins and Quraysh uh, would do now. Instead of what did happen, which was they quickly melted away and they assimilated to the culture of the peoples that they had conquered. Just some food for thought. Muhammad, like the children of Mecca, was sent off to be raised and suckled by a Bedouin tribe and every six months the children would be brought back to see their parents and their families and then they would return to the desert. Unfortunately, it wasn't long before tragedy would again hit the young boy. At the age of six, his mother also passed away and so he was taken in by his grandfather who would take care of him. His grandfather had already had a somewhat significant and notable role in his upbringing and in helping his mother Amina take care of him. Now that role was to be enlarged into the much bigger position, a much more important position as sole guardian. But that also didn't last very long and just two years later Abdul Muttalib passed away. Muhammad is sometimes referred to as the triple orphan and this is why his father died before he could even see him his mother died when he was six and in quick succession his grandfather who had basically been the father figure in his life filling in for Abdullah died when he was just eight. Muhammad was then transferred into the custody of Abu Talib who was one of his senior uncles and actually happened to be his full uncle. Abdul Muttalib throughout his life had side children with multiple wives. So Muhammad actually had quite a few uncles, but most of them were half uncles. Abu Talib and Abdullah were full brothers. They had the same mother. And so Abu Talib was the one that was in tasked with taking care of Muhammad because of their closer link. As an orphan, Muhammad now had no father figure in his life. No one that would give him the special attention that a young boy deserved and that a young boy craved. He didn't have a a father figure that would guide him the same way a father would. Under the tribal system that existed in the Bedouin culture prevalent in Mecca, the head of a clan had a certain responsibility to provide for and help the weaker or poorer members of his clan. It was like an unwritten law that existed because there was no upheld requirement that was enforced or set in stone but if the head of a clan did not help out weaker or poorer members of his clan for example if a member of his clan was for one reason or another unable to get a hold of enough food for themselves to survive they would simply starve and waste away if they weren't aided by an external factor a third party and so allowing a member of your clan to starve to death would become ammunition for other maybe rival clans to mock and ridicule you with 
which was, as we have discussed extensively, a big no-no for the proud Arabian psyche. For those reasons, Muhammad's guardians made sure that he did not starve to death, but that was the limit to the support that he may have received from them. Also, in this particular situation, it was quite difficult for his clan to do anything more than that for their orphan kinsmen, as the fortunes of the clan of Hashim, the Beni Hashim, had stooped down, and they seemed to be declining at this point in time. As Muhammad began to grow up, opportunities were very limited for him, and so he found himself working the most menial, basic job available in Mecca, a herder. The people in Mecca would hire people to take their herds out to the surrounding land in order to find pastures that could sustain their herds. This is what Muhammad's early adult life and what we would now consider adolescence and late childhood even would have entailed. Camping out outside of Mecca, leading herds of animals around the desert, seeking water holes and suitable grazing grounds, and then returning to Mecca periodically so that the owner of the herd could pay him and so that the owner of the herd could benefit from his herds. Compared to the amount of information that we have on Muhammad's later life, for example in Medina, we don't know that much of his life in Mecca, especially during his youth and early manhood. However, there are two events from this period that Muhammad is involved in to some extent. And these events are quite notable uh, in their own right, but they also serve as particularly useful checkpoints for our podcast, as these events manage to shed a light on the situation in Mecca and its developments as a rising power in Western Arabia. The first of the two events is Harbul Fijar, the Fijar War which translates to the Wicked War, or the Sacrilegious War, which I think is a better and more appropriate translation. And it was named this because the participants in the war didn't uphold the sacred laws, and they simply ignored them. They spilled blood within the holy sanctuaries, and they spilled blood during the holy months. This war began originally as a quarrel between two nomadic chiefs, one was leading a caravan from Iraq to a very popular grand 20-day fair at a place called Ukez in Central Arabia, not far from Mecca. The other guy basically ambushed the caravan, and we're not even totally sure why he did this, but it's suspected that it was because the caravan had passed through his territory without paying him what he saw as appropriate respect or asking for permission. Regardless of the reason, the man, along with the people accompanying his caravan, had been treacherously murdered and avenging them was an absolute necessity. The Quraysh, through their extensive alliance system, ended up getting involved, actually on the side of the aggressor. The sequence of events, as you can imagine by now, had followed the usual Bedouin desert pattern. Honor demanded revenge, and so the tribe of the murdered man attacked Kinana, and Kinana was the tribe of the murderer, and so Quraysh were dragged in as allies of the Kinana tribe. The Meccans were particularly motivated to get involved as this conflict pitted them against their rivals from the city of Ta'if, and also because due to their commercial interests, they were looking to extend their influence and to gain a controlling hand over the fair of Ukez. After a few early defeats, 
Quraysh were ultimately victorious, and their victory meant a rise in prestige, especially after their defeat of their neighbouring rivals from Ta'if. More importantly in the grand scheme of things, Quraysh had managed to garner for themselves an extension of their influence and an extension of their commercial network at the expense of the rival powers around them. They also managed to get what they wanted, which was a measure of control over the fair of Al-Qaz. Muhammad was around the age of 15 when this war occurred, and although during one of the battles where Quraysh and their allies had the worst of the day and ended up being somewhat overcome, Muhammad, while on the losing side, was able to show his skill as a bowman uh, during the thick of the battle, and he was praised for his courage and his valour in light of the situation. His role normally had been much more limited. He was one of the boys that would gather arrows for the fighters, and he would also stand by the archers and hand them an arrow every time they were about to shoot so that they didn't have to waste precious time scrambling about reaching for, for an arrow to fire. In effect, this allowed the archers to have a higher rate of fire for a more effective ranged attack. In the shadow of this war occurs the second event. A merchant from Yemen had come to Mecca and sold some valuable goods to one of the chiefs of Quraysh. This chief then refused to pay the promised price and he refused to pay the merchant what he owed him for the goods. The wrong merchant was a stranger in Mecca. He knew it and the chief knew it. He was actually in a very precarious situation because he had no kinsmen or confederates in Mecca. He didn't even have a patron or someone from Mecca as a sponsor who would usually be tasked with helping him out in a situation like this. So the merchant, due to his current helpless and somewhat desperate situation, went to a public spot that was frequented by a lot of people and called out loud, appealing to the people of Mecca as a whole. He implored them to see that justice was done. Luckily, the merchant received a response and there was a vigorous reaction from a large number of clans of Quraysh who came together and initiated what became known as Hilful Fudul, the League of the Virtuous. The League aimed to uphold justice and commercial integrity, and so the members of the League went to the offending chief who had withheld promised payment, and they basically strong-armed him into paying his debts and giving the Yemeni merchant what he had promised to pay him. At first glance, this seems to be simply a question of principles and uh, honour demanding that they uphold justice. However, when we look closer, we see two things. The first is that the tribes or the clans that entered this alliance were mostly the same clans from the earlier split in Mecca after the death of Qusay. If you remember, it was the split between uh, the sons of Abd al-Manaf, Bani Abd al-Manaf, and the sons of Abd al-Dar over the, uh, the responsibilities. In fact, amongst the clans that had sided with Bani Abd al-Manaf in that conflict, only three of those clans were absent as members of the League of the Virtuous. So we have remnants of that earlier conflict and a maintenance of the same rivalries within Quraysh uh, that had existed a few generations earlier, uh, still existing and driving them to oppose and undermine one another. The other thing that we see is that the withholding of payment by this uh, Qurashi chief was probably part of a wider scheme that deliberately attempted to stop Yemeni merchants from coming to Mecca 
and sharing in the lucrative trade and profits that were available at the Meccan end. They aimed to restrict the Yemeni merchants to trade in their own territory in Yemen, while the organization of the caravans was to be ideally uh, entirely in the hands of the Meccans. Now, this seems like a sound policy to pursue by the Meccans, so then why were there people in Mecca who worked against it by creating the League of the Virtuous? Well, again, when we look at the clans that formed it, we notice that actually the majority of them were either incapable of sending caravans south to the Yemen, or they were, for example, like the clan of Beni Hashim, which was the clan that Muhammad belonged to, uh, was specialised in the trade up north uh, in the Levant in Syria with the Byzantines. So it would not be in the interest of these clans for Yemeni traders to be restricted in their trade with Mecca because then the only way that they would be able to get a hold of goods from down south would be through the Meccans that were able to send caravans constantly and consistently to Yemen which would give them an upper hand because it would basically be somewhat of a monopoly on Yemeni goods. The clan of Beni Hashim played a leading role in the League of the Virtuous and so Muhammad as a member of the clan of Hashim of the Beni Hashim was directly involved as a sworn member within the League. Unfortunately that is all for today's episode. Join me next week where we will continue on our journey through Muhammad's life and where we will arrive at the beginning of revelation and the beginning of prophethood. I also want to inform you that beginning from next week, I'm going to aim to answer at least one question from the listeners uh, in the footnotes section. So if you have a question or some kind of query that you want answered, then head over to the blog historyofislampodcast.blogspot.com and go over onto the contact page where you can send me a message and your question might feature in the footnotes. This episode will contain some footnotes, so if you want to carry on listening after the end of the theme music, feel free to do so. Goodbye. listening to the footnote segment first of all i just want to thank all of you for the support you know who you are um today we only have a very short footnote segment i just want to rectify two mistakes from the previous episode they are slips of the tongue really uh the first is that um i ended the abdul muttalib sacrifice saga um by saying that he sacrificed 10 camels this was uh, a slip of the tongue what i meant to say was that he had the expensive task of sacrificing 100 camels the second is that i said that umayya ibn abd shams um the cousin of abdul muttalib was the son of qusay uh, or a son of qusay uh, this was a mistake what i what i meant um was that he was uh, a descendant of qusay so not a direct uh, not a direct son of Qusay, um which would have been obvious in the context, but um, I'm, I managed to somehow 
brain fart and say that. Uh, Qasai is actually his great-grandfather. It's uh, Umayyah ibn Abd shams ibn Abd Manaf ibn Qasai. Again, if you don't remember, ibn means son of. So Umayyah was the son of a man called Abd shams who was the twin of Hashim. Hashim was Abdul Muttalib's father, so Abdul Muttalib and Umayyah were cousins. Um, Umayyah's grandfather was Abd Manaf. Abd Manaf was a son of Qusay, and he was the man that was uh, snubbed for the responsibilities. So, again, if you're interested in all these intricacies uh, in the genealogies and the family trees, and you want to know more about um, the sort of the rivalries that were. Uh, present in Mecca, then head over to the episode guide or the gallery to see images of these family trees or take part in the new scheme that I've uh, initiated of answering one listener question uh, or at least one listener question uh, every episode in a footnote segment by going over to the podcast uh, website and heading over to the contact page where you can send me a message. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next week.